This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles uh, for our sermon text this evening to Judges chapter 2. So we've begun a series of studies in this Old Testament book of Judges, page 201 in the uh, Pew Bibles, Judges Judges uh, is concerned with the time between the conquest of the promised land under Joshua uh, pretty much until the time of the monarchy uh, with, uh, with Saul, picking up with Saul. Although Samuel does not uh, occur in the book of Judges, uh, it really falls under that same time of transition between, on the one hand, Israel going into the promised land, and then that time when they come under their first king, Saul, who I think most of you know did, that did not go so well, uh, but then uh, later David and Solomon and so on. So it's that, that period of time that we're looking at. Tonight we are looking at Judges chapter 2, verse 6, into chapter 3, verse 6. Hear the word of God. When Joshua dismissed the people, People of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnatheres in the hill country of Ephraim north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they should no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out... The hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. But the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt 
and their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we study your word tonight that you would give us clarity in our thinking this late hour of the day, keep us alert. But Father, more than that, we pray that your spirit would minister your word to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that Christianity is always only one generation away from extinction. Now, that's looking at the case from a merely human point of view, of course. Uh, God is sovereign. He will not let his church vanish from the world. But by the same token, he's not always promised that his church will thrive in every place at the same time. And so the point of that uh, observation is well taken, that we need to of course, uh, teach our faith to those who are around us in terms of evangelism, but we also need to be diligent in teaching the truths of the faith to our children and praying that the Lord would water those seeds of truth that are planted so that they take root and so that they grow and they sprout and, uh, and blossom and bear much fruit in the lives of our children and we trust in the generations that follow. However, In our passage this evening, it does seem that God's people, uh, the church, at least as it was in the Old Testament, uh, if we want to use the word church in an anachronistic way, God's people in the Old Testament, was in danger of extinction. As we look at this passage that is before us tonight, it really kind of serves as as a introduction to the book of Judges, the passage we looked at last time, sort of sets the stage, but in some ways this chapter, this passage serves as a flashback and to just kind of paint the panorama of what is to come. In fact, one person describes it as kind of a, uh, kind of a, a, a visitor center film, you know, for the book of Judges. You see the, the orientation, the film, you know, and then you go see the exhibit that uh, shows it all, that the film shows you what you're going to see and tells you why it's significant. Well, that's kind of what this passage does. It provides an overview of what is to come in Judges and why things were 
the way they were. This preview for understanding the rest of the book. And what it describes is how from one generation to the next, this astounding apostrophe or apostasy, maybe it's an apostrophe too, an apostasy takes place uh, among the people of God. You know, you're almost left pondering, how could that happen? How could, how could from one generation to the next, such a turning away occur? And yet that's exactly what this describes. So let's take a look. In first place, we want to look at a, a discouraging contrast. A discouraging contrast in uh, chapter 2, verse 6 to verse 13. The contrast, of course, is, is between two generations. And this degeneration that takes place from one to the next. It describes, uh, it's something of a flashback again to Joshua. Remember, uh, verse one, chapter one, verse one begins, judges with the death of Joshua. Well, this is something of a flashback. A look again at that generation. Uh, we read how the people serve the Lord, verse seven, all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, those who helped to lead Israel under Joshua's leadership. And, and after Joshua was gone, that leadership continued and things went along pretty well. It was those, as verse 7 says, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Those who had experienced the conquest, who had uh, seen what what the Lord had done. And then we read of Joshua's death uh, at the age of 110 years, and they bury him. And that's good. That's, That's the believing generation. But then the next generation comes up. Verse 10, after they were gathered to their fathers, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, this apostate generation is described pretty graphically in verse 11, 12. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They went after the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. Notice the repetition. They served the Baals. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. Among the gods of the peoples who are around them, they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So repeatedly, it emphasizes both they're serving these Canaanite gods and abandoning the true God, the Lord, who had brought them out of Egypt. Now, who were the Baals? Who were the Ashtaroth? Well, a little bit of Canaanite mythology. Uh, Baal was the god of fertility, fruitfulness of rain that would uh, allow the ground to produce fruit. The, the god was El. But Baal was, was the god whose particular department was rain and therefore the fruitfulness of the earth that came from it. Uh, Astarte or uh, Ashtara, Ashira, different forms of the name, was his female consort. And uh, basically, the idea in Canaanite religion was that when Baal and uh, Asherah uh, were getting along well, shall we say, uh, things went well. The ground produced fruit. Now, Canaanite religion was a reminder religion. It was to remind Baal and Asherah what they needed to do to make sure the earth was fruitful and multiplied, shall we say. So Canaanite religion involved reminding by example. And that's why you had uh, had uh, Canaanite uh, religious prostitutes, temple prostitutes. 
so that's kind of how Canaanite religion worked. And it was to remind the gods to be fruitful and uh, so that the earth would, would bear fruit. And Israel came into that environment. Now remember, the Lord um, was angry with them because while they came in and took domination over the land and subjugated the peoples, they did not wipe them out. The Canaanites, they, they put them to forced labor, they made slaves of them. The Canaanites continued to practice their religion. And before long, the Israelites started thinking, mm, that looks kind of interesting, you know. Uh, here we are in this new land. This seems, these seem to be the gods of this new land. And, um, um, hmm, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should join in with some of these things. And that's exactly what began to happen. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. The reason it's in plural is because there could be various locations, uh, where, where this would take place. Baal was typically, um, represented by some sort of post or pillar. Uh, the, the Ashtaroth, which in Hebrew is a plural, that O-T-H ending is a feminine plural ending. You don't need to write that down in your notes unless that just particularly interests you. Uh, there's the various locations where Baal worship and Asherah worship uh, or Starty worship took place. And so that's why it's in the plural. Uh, many convenient locations uh, coming soon near you. So that was that was Canaanite religion. That's what the, uh, the the Israelites were drawn into. But it resulted in their abandoning the Lord, going after these other gods. Now, why? Why would that happen? Now, when you look at it, you think, what went wrong? Just from one generation to the next. Well, there's another. Uh, there's several reasons for that. And one, as we've mentioned, is just the influence of Canaanite religion. Uh, and that's why the Lord had wanted them wiped out. So that influence wouldn't be there, but it was, and it was a dangerous influence. By the way, there's other reference to this, to this in other places in Scripture. Psalm 106 uh, describes this pretty graphically. It says they didn't, this is uh, verses 34 through 40 of Psalm 106. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idol of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, played the whore in their deeds, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. One reason was just Canaanite influence. Another reason was secondhand faith. Secondhand faith. Uh, as one writer puts it, our children must not merely ape our faith. They need to be converted. We don't want our children merely to imitate us, at least for as long as they're in the home. We want their hearts to be changed. We want them to experience firsthand knowledge of the Lord, not a secondhand faith that they picked up from us that has no power and no strength and is gone as soon as they are. We don't want them to imitate us. We don't want them just to behave in certain ways. They need to be converted. They need that miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to give them new life. This generation didn't have that. Notice what it says in verse 10. A generation after them who did not know the Lord. They knew their parents. They knew what their parents believed or what they did, but they did not know the Lord, the second-hand faith. Speaking of their parents, apparently some level of parental failure. Again, verse 10, they didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
Did their parents not tell them? Did they not hear about it? Maybe they did. Maybe it's just saying that they, they didn't know it in, an, in the sense of experiencing the work. But it's possible that there was some failure here, at least in that first generation, to do as they were instructed in Deuteronomy and tell their children who God is and what he had done for them. So some of the reason may simply be a failure on the first generation is as well as they served the Lord to transmit the knowledge of the Lord in terms of the facts, what he had done for Israel to their children. And then there's just plain ingratitude and forgetfulness. Uh, look at verse 12. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Jeremiah says something similar to this in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verses 5 through 6. The Lord says, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? They don't ask, where's the Lord who did all these magnificent things? They seem to just have forgotten it. Uh, Or worse, been aware of it, but were just not grateful for it. The forgetfulness of all God had done. 2 Peter 2.1 warns false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction so another reason could just be this forgetfulness uh, or indifference and gratitude to the saving work of the lord on their behalf That's one reason that we have the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me, lest we forget the grace of God who bought us with the blood of his son. That ongoing reminder of what God has done for us, that we see that and we hope our children see that and certainly hear of the work of God, but also we pray would be converted so that's the, that's the first thing that we see here is just this, this discouraging contrast from one generation to the next. But then, having introduced that, it, it establishes this cyclical pattern in the second place, a cyclical pattern that really marks the rest of the book of Judges. This cycle that we go through, and it will go through a number of times in, uh, in Judges. It begins in verse 14, 14 through 19. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, sold them into that wonderful Hebraic uh, redundancy, plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. They were weak. They were prey to their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. Saw that last week, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. They were in a bad way. So notice what happens. Lord raises up judges who save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But they didn't listen to them. They continued to whore after other gods, bow down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked and obeyed the commandment of the Lord, didn't do so. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges, the Lord was with the judge. And after all, the Lord raised him up. He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Why? For the Lord was moved to pity 
by their groaning. That word groaning is interesting because it describes what they were doing in Egypt under the burden of the oppression of Egypt. Notice also it doesn't say repentance. He wasn't moved by their repentance. He was moved by their misery expressed in this groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. It just got worse going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So this pattern of sin and rebellion, of oppression and misery, groaning, uh, and then the Lord acting, raising up a deliverer, Judge, not a judge in the sense we typically think of it, but in the sense of a rescuer, a deliverer, a leader, uh, to, to restore them. And then the cycle repeats. A couple of lessons we can learn from this. One is the awesome and horrifying power of sin. We need to recognize, and we were actually talking about this in the men's Bible study uh, last Friday morning, uh, if you think of sin merely as actions, doing the wrong thing, uh, or maybe you're a little more sophisticated and recognize sin as not doing the right thing, you have a reductionistic view of sin. Because sin is not just what we do or what we don't do. Sin is, is who we are. Sin is first and foremost a condition, not an action. It issues forth in actions uh, or inaction, but sin is a condition of the heart. And as such, there is a, there is a power, there is a force to it. Uh, the, the illustration came up Friday morning uh, of like, like gravity that's always pulling downward. And it's always working on us, always pulling us away from the Lord because it's the condition of our hearts. And you see that here. You see the nature of sin at work. Apart from regeneration, apart from God's grace, you see how prone to wander we really are. You see it illustrated in living color throughout the book of Judges. And recognize, as the old saying goes, there but for the grace of God go I. The other striking thing, as you see that pattern, uh, is it's not just the, the frightening power of sin, but the amazing compassion and mercy and grace of God. Because there was no covenant keeping on Israel's part here. You remember the covenant. If you, if you obey, you are blessed. If you disobey, you are cursed. God sort of lists that. Because in their disobedience, and in spite of their disobedience, certainly not because of it, He blesses them. He's moved to compassion at the suffering of His people, even when it's because of their own waywardness and sinfulness. And so He raises up a deliverer. Because he's going to keep the promises that he's made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It could have been that, yes, that whole generation led to a total extinction and Israel was gone in the period of the judges. That could well have happened, just assimilated into Canaanite life and religion. But God wasn't going to let that happen. Not because the people deserved it, but because of his promises and because of his Grace. So both uh, frightening to think of the power of sin at work in the human heart, but it's encouraging to think of the mercy and the compassion of God 
simply for people in their sin, in the misery uh, that that sin brings and the consequences of it in this world. You know, it reminds us of Jesus who looked out on the crowds of people and felt compassion on them because he saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Well, you see that same look here in the book of Judges as the Lord looks on his people and they're being as covenantally unfaithful as they can be. And yet the Lord is just heartbroken over their suffering and he raises up yet another deliverer for them. Well, then that brings us to the final section here, and that is, is the Lord's response, this divine response. We've seen the, this discouraging contrast in the generations, the, the summary of this uh, cyclical pattern that is going to occur. But then we also see this divine response to it from verse 20 on. Of course, one is anger. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He felt compassion for them in their suffering. But he also felt anger for them. And, and it's rightly so. He says, because this people have transgressed my covenant of commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left. Now, the Lord's anger is the price we pay for being loved. Because the Lord's anger is a jealous anger. Because Israel is his. Israel belongs to him, just as your husband or your wife belongs to you. And God's anger is a jealous anger when his people go after other gods. It's a right anger. It's a jealous. It's not merely, it's not even a vindictive anger. It is a immoral outrage that those who belong to him are going after another. Just as you should be angry. If your husband or your wife has taken up with somebody else in a jealous anger, because what what is happening is a denial to you of what is yours. But anger is one response. Another is testing. Now, some of this is it's kind of backing up a little and looking at the bigger picture. Uh, God had instructed Israel when they were when they were taking the land not to drive out all the nations at once, but to do so gradually. And certainly here, the Lord says he's not going to drive them out. But notice verse 22, for testing, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. The Lord left those nations. Again, chapter 3, verse 1, the nations the Lord left to test Israel by them. And then again in verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. So if it's said three times, that should get your attention. In fact, I've got each of those words underlined. Test Israel by them. To test Israel by them. Testing of Israel. Okay, we're starting to get the point. They're there as a test. One which, by the way, Israel obviously fails repeatedly. But the Lord leaves these nations to, to test them. To see how they would respond. So he responds with anger on the, on the one hand to their, to their, uh, to their whoring after other gods. He responds with, with testing. He does test them to see how they'll respond to the temptations around them. But then also for teaching. Notice chapter 3, verse 2. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. Another reason that they weren't all gone was so that other generations would have the opportunity to learn to fight. To learn to defend themselves. To learn... Uh, to, to, as it says, to learn uh, war. That's an interesting thought uh, that the Lord says, that, that they would know war to teach them uh, to those who had known it before, perhaps, so they wouldn't grow soft. 
Perhaps so they would uh, learn to trust in the Lord and to recognize that the, their victory in war came through the Lord, through his power, not through their own might or through their own effort. And yet the Lord wanted them to know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And so that's his response, his anger, testing of them and teaching of them. And yet all in all, it's a pretty sad picture. Uh, verses 5 and 6 summarize it. The people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which is almost formulaic. You, you encounter that list in that order in many other places in Scripture. And if you say it right, there's almost a certain rhythm to it. Uh, and the Jebusites, of course, were the ones at Jerusalem. Jebus was Jerusalem uh, that, uh, that David took, the city of David. Verse 6, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Or as Jeremiah later would say it, uh, they exchanged the one true living God uh, for gods they haven't known. In fact, gods who are uh, other than demonic entities, no real gods at all. Extinct in one generation? Certainly looks like it. And yet the reality is, even in this dark time, God was not going to let his church pass from the world. God is sovereign. God is merciful. God is faithful to his covenant promises, and he will not let his church vanish from the world. That should be the least of your worries, whether the church will continue in the world or not. Which, again, is not to say it will always thrive in any given place at any given time. But it's also true that God has placed upon us, his church, a responsibility. While we trust in God's sovereignty over it, he's also given us the responsibility for the evangelization of the nations and the neighborhoods, as well as for the training up of our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering passage, no doubt about it. And uh, Lord, it reminds us all too much of our own wayward hearts. Father, it reminds us of our own failures uh, in making known the gospel, whether to the nations or to our own children. But Father, we rest in your grace. We pray for your grace to be as faithful as we can be in carrying out these responsibilities that you've given to us. But, Father, we don't do so in our own strength. We look to you and trust in you to water the seed of the word of God that it might bear much fruit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.